Hey, entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web host. And that's where HostGator comes in. HostGator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, HostGator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash HostGator today and let your online journey begin. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, what do you got for us today? I got a nice full glass of aristocrat brandy, but I also no, have some stories. Hey, it's aged aristocrat brandy too. It's probably 15 years old. Nice. So. Nice. <laughs> aged in the plastic bottle. <laughs> All right. So we're moving ahead in time a little bit. <laughs> to 1913. 1913. What is that? Like two years later from the last episode? Yeah, but, uh, but I'll tell you that um, we're close. Uh, very soon we're going to be into the 20s and the 30s, and it really kind of picks up after this. So, Wow, they must have had a really dead spot in history there, huh? It's going to... It'll it'll pick up. But anyway, so we're in 1913. Um, still people getting martyred. <laughs> Some things just never change. Right. So that's uh, that's what we're going to be talking about, some more murders. This episode is called the Ronzio Double Slaying. So kicking off 1913 in January, we have a small bomb going off. The bomb explodes. Uh, windows in nearby buildings are shattered. Nobody is harmed, and the matter is not reported to the police. Most interesting, do you know whose house the bomb was at? I have no idea. The guy that shot... The person at the Boston store? No. <laughs> no, Vito Bartolabeni, the mob boss himself. Wow. Gets his house bombed. This, I'm going to guess that there is some massive retaliation to this one. Yeah, it doesn't go over well. Uh, like I said, they don't report it to the police, but uh, you know, they still, the police kind of find out about it because it's a bomb. Um, a witness said that the bomber left a package about a foot squared on the front porch, lit a fuse with a match, and ran. Uh, Vito's son, Pete, told the press, I don't know who could have had intentions upon my life or that of my father. We have no enemies that I know of and have always prided ourselves on having the friendship of all the Italian people in the city. I have received no letters demanding money and I don't think any will come. Uh, It's possible he didn't receive any letters. Um, It's absolute BS (laughs) that there's no no enemies. (laughs) Uh, So he he knows better than that. He's completely lying to the press with that. So now we're going to get our way into the Ronzio double slaying and this is going to be a little bit unusual as far as mob connected murders go because of who's targeted the Ronzio family moved to Milwaukee from Pennsylvania uh, the group consisted of Jerry Ronzio his name's actually Gennaro but he went by Jerry mm-hmm. Jerry Ronzio his mother his wife Teresa and their three children they had a small home and Jerry found employment nearby uh, he worked in Kodahe. He was a member of a mutual benefit society, which provided him life insurance benefits. Um, so he was doing okay. He was making a life for himself. Unfortunately, one day he returns home from work, and he finds that his mother and his children are there, but his wife is missing. 
Interesting. Along with his wife is one of the people who was staying at his house, a man named Andrew Stagno. Uh, it became apparent that she would not be returning, so he filed a warrant against her for abandonment and applied to the county poorhouse for assistance. The children were taken away and placed in the county home for dependent children in nearby Wauwatosa. Apparently, if the mother is gone, the father decides he doesn't want to take care of the, <laughs> the kids. kids. They they have a system for this. They apparently, have a, they have a system. <laughs> you, you go to an orphanage, um, and it's you don't go to like you don't get like a foster home or anything. You stay there until the dad's ready to come back for you. So, uh, could be a while. That's interesting. So, um. You said that the mother, he comes home, the mother is gone, and it becomes apparent that the mother is not coming back. Yes. And I'm sure we're probably going to get into this, but is the mother dead? The, the mother, mother is not ju- dead. The mother, so the mother just up and left. Yes. Yes, with the implication being that she ran off with the guy staying in the house. Oh, okay, okay. So his children are now in the hands of the state. His wife is in places unknown. It was just Jerry and his mother. For months, this worked as well as could be expected until something unforeseen occurred. The pair were stabbed to death on February 10th, 1913, in the kitchen of their home. Either the mother or the guy has to be up to something no good, right? Mm-hmm. Be mm-hmm. quickly making enemies to it for this to happen. Uh, apparently so. So Thomas Turk, who lived next door, he said that he heard a scuffle, but he didn't really think much about it. Uh, he says there was a party... Um, I heard some music playing. There seemed to be several persons moving around. Music stopped around 10 p.m. Around 11 o'clock, I was woken up by screams, but I was tired. I went back to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The next day, a police officer arrives uh, just to check on their well-being, and he finds their bodies there. The corpses were slashed and stabbed repeatedly. Jerry's heart had actually been pierced three times. Wow, and this is brutal, too. Yeah. The paper said that the crime was one of the most horrible and utterly baffling murder mysteries they had ever seen, and one of the most brutal crimes in Milwaukee history. Police initially suspected a botched robbery as the motive. They found a knife that was underneath Jerry, leading police to think that the killer wanted to make the scene look like a son killing his mother and then himself, so it looked like the knife had been planted there. But this was quickly seen through because when they saw Jerry's wounds, they were like, no, this guy did not, this guy did not kill himself. That did not happen. So police considered the motive of revenge. They noted that Jerry's wife had abandoned the family. The police were looking for the boarder, the man who had stayed with the family. And another person who had stayed with them previously, a man named Albert uh, Majori, and I'm probably saying Majori wrong, but... Nobody knew where he was, so they started looking for these men. They at least asked questions to see what had been going on in the home. An unidentified attorney spoke with the police and said there were other people who had stayed in the house at different points in time. So they tried to track down these different people to get an idea of what was going on there. A police captain told the press, We want these men. There was some sort of meeting in the Ronzio home on Sunday night before the murder. It was probably a secret society. Mrs. Ronzio undoubtedly retired previous to her murder. Probably she overheard something the others did not want her to hear and was attacked. Then, probably, her son came to her defense and both were killed. Men believed to be connected to the crime were picked up and questioned all over the state, in Pewaukee, Sheboygan, Burlington, but nothing useful was found. I will stop for a moment and talk about this police statement to the, to the press. 
Uh, first of all, like I'm emphasizing probably because this guy's making a lot of speculation. Uh, but second of all, I have no idea where these. Oh, they're having a party. It was a secret society. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea where he's getting that from. Well, so the, it talks about how all these people are staying at this house. Mm-hmm. Is this something that would commonly happen mm-hmm. in this time? Like you would just have random people stay at your house all the time? Yes. Or, okay, so this uh, that's not really suspicious. That's just something that was very common in this time. Right. Yeah, I suppose today that might sound a little strange, but that's actually very, very common. Okay. Um, if you had an extra bedroom or an extra couch or something, yeah, people would pay to stay at your house for you know a week, a month, a year, whatever. Um, and that was just common because most of these people were so poor that whatever they could do to get a little bit of money and yeah. the people that are renting the place probably couldn't afford to get a place of their own. Basically. Yeah. So it was very, very common. Uh, the police spoke to an informant who said he saw one of the missing residents in the third ward after the murder covered in bloodstains. <laughs> this time, more suspects were arrested as far away as Minneapolis, Chicago, and even Buffalo, New York. So they've talked to people all over the place. They again started suspecting that it was robbery after speaking to the landlord. The landlord said that he had been visiting the family earlier that year, and he saw the old woman pay the rent from a brown wallet loaded with cash that she kept rolled up in a dirty towel. The landlord was with a carpenter at the time, and he told the carpenter, quote, She was foolish to keep this amount of money in the house, and that she would probably be murdered for it. <laughs> I, this is this is literally the way the newspaper reported this. Very I, good foreshadowing there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, d- did this really happen? Did did the landlord go to the house with the, with the carpenter and then afterwards say that lady's going to get murdered? <laughs> I I don't know, but that's that's really how they reported these things. <laughs> Police released photos and descriptions of the men they wanted. They were still focused on Albert Majori, but they had a new suspect. John Severino, who had recently arrived from Santa Flavia, the Santa Flavia that we are come to know as the place that most of these mob guys are from. Police elaborated on Majori. They said that he only spoke Italian. He didn't speak a word of English. You know, he wasn't going to blend in outside of an Italian community very well. That evening, detectives were sent to Kenosha on the news that one of the wanted men had been seen there. Half a dozen Italians in Kenosha, including a baker, verified that Majori had been there. Majori was identified as a companion to another Italian man who was arrested in Kenosha for carrying a concealed weapon. Unfortunately, I don't know the name of that man, so that could be a really interesting story. It might be nothing. I don't know. I just want to point out, too, that it's very interesting that the um, the news, when they reported this, they're like, we talked to a number of people, including a baker. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. like does that, is that really relevant? Probably not. <laughs> Continue. I'm sorry. That's no, just... that's all right. The police's next step was they. This was around Easter time, so they attended church at the uh, the Italian church, hoping they could spot somebody who, you know, they were looking for one of the suspects. Um, but it soon turned out to be a wild goose chase. So they sat through church for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting idea, though. <laughs> Interesting idea that the murderer would return for Easter service. <laughs> Later that same day, a Kenosha police officer was involved in a shootout with Italians believed to be the Ronzio killers. No one was harmed or arrested. Interestingly, the same officer, a man named John Sizak, was involved in a second shootout later the same year. During the second showdown, he received a serious injury that left him in critical condition in the hospital. 
He recovered and was promoted to captain. So this guy's getting in sh- regular shootouts with Italians in Kenosha, <laughs> uh, which that's a whole other story. And he gets a promotion because he gets of a promotion because of it. So. But this is maybe we'll touch on this sometime. But the earliest days in Kenosha, there were two different Italian gangs, and their turf like butted up against each other. So they would literally stand on street corners and fire guns at each other across the street. Oh my god. So I think that's definitely worthy of an episode. Yeah, they'd stand so. on the corner and shoot at each other from across. The, they wouldn't walk across the street because then they were in the other <laughs> other turf. But they'd fire. They at each had other. respect. Yeah. <laughs> like they respected each other's territory. Yeah, so one of the suspects, John Severino, was finally arrested, and he was still in Milwaukee. He was given the third degree for six hours. At first, he denied his guilt, saying that he was at a movie theater. He said he had been staying at the home of Sam Paraconi. Sam Paraconi, if that name sounds familiar. Which it does. Is the brother of Mike Paraconi, who was murdered in one of our previous episodes as a suspected Black Hand member. Such a small world that this was. Uh, Albert Majori, the other guy wanted, was never caught. A preliminary hearing was held, and Severino at first pled not guilty, and he denied that he was involved in this at all. He hired a very good attorney, a man named E.G. Worcester, who was the treasurer of Milwaukee County. He was the former district attorney. He would later try to run again for district attorney, though he did not get it. But he was a very, very prominent guy. He was very good at what he did. Uh, police testified what they found at the scene, including what they saw with blood spatters, uh, they showed the court the 8-inch stiletto, the knife that was underneath him. Uh, the court asked another man to identify the stiletto as Severino's. Uh, he didn't want to. How he would know it was his, I don't know. But he asked this guy to identify it. At first he said no, but then he agreed to after a bailiff removed another Italian who was sitting in the courtroom making mysterious hand gestures. <laughs> Once this man was removed, he said, yes, that does look like the stiletto that John Severino owned. Uh, Dr. William Becker performed the autopsy, and he confirmed that the wounds could not have been self-inflicted. In fact, it is impossible to stab yourself three times in the heart. <laughs> it cannot be done. <laughs> Sam Perricone told the tale that Ronzio, Jerry Ronzio, had feared his own death ahead of time. Quote, One week before he was killed, Ronzio told me that he had been to a fortune teller, and she had told him that he and his mother would be murdered. Later, I talked with Severino, and he told me that Ronzio had told him the same thing, that he was afraid of death because of what the fortune teller told him. Now, Perricone said that on the day of the murder, he was at the movies with Severino. Later that evening, Severino arrived at a saloon with bloody clothes and had Perricone buy him a new outfit for $5, while the soiled clothes were burned in a stove. Severino spent the night sleeping on the saloon's pool table. So the alibi he had of being at the movie theater that day was true, but he was there at the wrong time. (laughs) During the state's case, uh, Severino didn't show any sign of nervousness. He listened attentively. But all things said and done, he was bound over for trial. This was still preliminary hearing, so he was bound over for trial. During his arraignment, he changed his plea to guilty. They decreased it to second-degree murder, which avoided a trial, and he was sentenced to 25 years in Waupun prison. He broke down and confessed to the district attorney. He claimed that a fight had broken out after Jerry Ronzio accused him of stealing $225 from a trunk in the house. They had argued over a woman that they both had affections for. The two were sitting by the stove with Albert Majori and their other friend, Sam Minio. They swore at each other in the most vicious way, and Ronzio shot and wounded Severino with his revolver. 
They struggled over a knife, and Severino ended up killing Jerry. I knew that if he got the knife away, he would kill me, and I tried to weaken him by stabbing him three times, Severino explained. He got weaker and weaker, but still fought like a tiger, and I felt that he might still get it away from me. During this struggle, Majori allegedly killed the mother with his own knife to stop her screaming and alerting the neighbors, and then plunged the knife into Jerry's heart before placing it under him to fake a suicide. Sam Minio had witnessed the scuffle, but he did not get involved. Um, how much you want to believe of that, you know, is fine, but he but he pled guilty at this point, so it's probably fairly really true. true. Yeah, I mean, he's probably making himself look a lot better than, than yeah. you know, he probably pushed a lot of it off on that majority guy or whatever yeah. however i mutilate mutilated yeah, his you, name. you and me both so. so so and none of these people were actually the person that his wife supposedly took off with nope. okay just curious because i was waiting for her to enter back into the story to find out whatever happened to her but i guess we don't know where it's a little bit left Oh, okay. So, <laughs> oh, God, am I giving a spoiler? No, no, no. no. You're good. So, all right. Well, keep going then. All right. So, the, the confession continued. <laughs> <laughs> After the killing, Severino, Majori, and Minio turned off the lights. They ran across a trestle into the third ward. They actually crossed the river from the third ward. So, now they're in it. But they met up with Frank Galeotto and Sam Perricone at Frank Galeotto's saloon. These are names you're probably not going to have to remember but there they are uh they explained the blood on them by saying they had been in a fight which is technically true and were allowed to sleep on a pool table in the basement echoing Perricone's earlier testimony severino said the next morning they went to a woman's house they knew and sever er, and Perricone picked up a used suit for severino for five dollars they stayed at the woman's house for two days so severino could recover from his gunshot and they took an electric car to chicago severino's confession took up a total of 120 pages unfortunately this confession no longer exists <laughs> i would love oh, to dear. have this 120 page confession because it's Far more than these two paragraphs, I'm sure. So, did is it just something with that the courts or whatever got rid of? Or why does this confession not exist? I would assume it would be in a police file or something somewhere. Well, right? the, yes, but the police files don't go back this far. Okay, so they didn't... Wow, so there, there's... I mean, so you're basically working off of news stories. Primarily off of news stories, um, also off of coroner's records. Um but in this case, the newspaper was really good because it's one of those rare events where someone was actually caught for, <laughs> yeah. for a murder. So so there's more of the story than usual. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the police files are gone. It's possible the court records exist somewhere. I'm not sure. But I mean, this is a hundred, almost 110 years, years ago, ago now. So um, maybe they exist. I don't know. I, if that confession turns up, I'd love to see that. If anybody knows where the confession is. Yeah email us all right so severino goes off to wapan from the county jail and he makes a statement to the press i am going to be a good prisoner he said i am going to get all the time for good behavior and i will be out in 13 years and nine months from now on i am going to tell the truth all the time after the murder i told no one but my brother no other person knew exactly what had happened but severino's plans for prison did not go as smoothly as he said Within two years, he was transferred to Wapan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. After developing a violent form of insanity, 
Uh, this is probably, he probably had schizophrenia, but at this time they didn't really have terms for that. Right. Records said the insanity was brought on by his brooding over his conviction for a crime that he now claimed he did not commit. Even though he confessed to Even it. Even though he confessed to it. So now apparently he's sitting in prison. He's he's going like, no, it's not me. It's not me. To the point where he drove himself crazy. So he spent out the remainder of his days at the state hospital for the criminally insane. <laughs> Which I don't know. What do you think's worse? The state hospital for the criminally insane or prison itself? Prison's probably worse. You think so? Yeah. Well, I guess I don't know. It would be tough to call. So... Ronzio's wife was finally found. Ah! Seven years later, she had moved away to Scranton, Pennsylvania. She changed her name to Miller. And she was with a man who called himself Ralph Izzo. They arrested her, tried to bring her back. The district attorney said, There is no law of limitation so far as abandonment is concerned, and we can bring her back on that charge. If any other evidence is presented to me, I will issue other warrants for her arrest. What other evidence there would be, I don't know. I, I don't think she had any connection to these murders at all. But but even seven years later, they brought her back for abandoning her family. I, is that a severe crime? It's not a major crime, but it's... Uh, it's bad enough to bring you back, I guess. It's bad so. enough that they brought her back from Pennsylvania. Yeah. So the Ronzio children were sent away to a boarding school uh, and eventually placed in an orphanage. Uh, one of them grew up and uh, got married and had kids in, in Scranton. So I know I don't know where the other two ended up, but one of them I know grew up and had a family in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So um, I guess they turned out okay, all things considered. So does um does a mother go to like a pr- prison for that or? Yeah, but I mean, not like for a long time. She probably didn't even get a full year for that. So, so in theory, she got out of prison, then went back to Scranton, and the kids did. That kid must have followed her. Is that how the kid would end up in Scranton? You think, or that's or? that's reasonable. I actually don't know that answer, but that's a reasonable assumption of why the kids would go back to Pennsylvania as opposed to just staying because the orphanage was in was in Lake, which. Um, if, for anyone who doesn't know, Lake is basically where the Milwaukee Airport is. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's that's a very good guess, is that she probably claimed them back at some okay. point. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know. And then my other question was, I don't think you really touched on this, but what kind of ties... Well, first of all, how does the explosion... I, I, is the explosion just part of this story because it happened in this year? Yes. Or, okay, so it's not tied to that. It's not directly connected to this incident. The The reason it comes up is just that that's in January of 1913. This is in February of 1913. So it's just kind of like it was still fresh in the minds of people. There ultimately, there turns out to be no connection at all. Okay, and that's what – there's no suspected connection with the two at all. Right. I think that – I mean, there may have been at the time. They may have thought, oh, you know, he's in this secret society. They're going to – Maybe he was targeted because of this bomb or whatever. There might have been some speculation on that. But ultimately, if the way it played out is true, and I think it probably is, there is no connection, really. Okay. It's just it's just sort of setting, describing the time. And was this Ronzio guy a known mafia member? I don't think he was. I don't, okay. I don't believe so. But the, the, I can't even remember the names at this point. There's too many names. Okay. So but the guy that killed him. Was and was he mafia? So the guy who killed him is is John Severino. He may have been. 
And it seems that it may have been because the, the where they went after the fact is questionable. They met up with Sam Paraconi, who we know is, is the brother to this murdered black hand bomber. Um, so he's questionable. They meet up with Frank Aliota and... I don't know much about Frank Aliotto, but the Aliotto name is going to come up a, a lot, lot in the future. It's a major, it's a major name. Um, and Frank Galliano is the other guy they meet up with. So, and Galliano is going to come up again in the future. In fact, I think it might come up in the next episode. Oh, crazy! And uh, so, so the fact that they're they knew where to hide out, but like when you show up and covered in bloody clothes, and someone's like, "Oh yeah, just stay in my basement for a couple of days," it, it's seems to me that they if they weren't mob members they were at least friendly they they were connected to people that they were with people who were happy to hide a murderer yeah who who killed an elderly woman i mean that's pretty bad so yeah cool so does that wrap this one up that wraps this one up well that was a short one for the day so that's good yeah sure we we take her down a notch after the big long one so So I'm sure there'll be a long one again. But yeah. For now. All right. Well, I think that wraps this episode up. Do you got anything else, Gavin? Other than just throwing out some contact info, encouraging people to send us emails. I guess that's about it. Yeah. If somebody wants to contact us, uh, you can find me at MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com or MilwaukeeMafia.com. Strongly encourage you to. Um, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. If you have show ideas, please let us know. I'm going to just keep going in order, but, you know, if you don't want to hear about the 1910s, 20s, 30s, if you'd rather jump ahead to something more recent, let me know, and I'll, I'll be happy to put it in there. So, so yeah, reach out. All right, and thanks, everybody, again for tuning in. We're really excited about all the people that are listening to this, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and True Crime History. Hey there, fellow entrepreneurs. If you're tired of complicated domain management, I've got the solution for you, Hover.com. Hover makes registering and managing domains a breeze. Their clean interface and hassle-free experience will save you time and frustration. No upsells, no hidden fees, just straightforward domain services. Plus, Hover offers top-notch customer support. Make your life easier. Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash hover and simplify your domain journey today.